0: there's no feeling quite like a video game flow state when the world melts away and you can just go and go and go there's no punchline i just think that's cool welcome to triple click where we bring the games to you this week we're taking an unexpected detour to talk about the fabulous octopath traveler 2 and what it tells us about jrpgs and video game storytelling pick your starting character
1: and let's get into it I'm Kirk Hamilton.
2: I'm Maddie Myers.
1: And I'm Jason Schreier. Hello. Hello.
0: Hello. Hello,
2: everybody.
1: Hello, my friends. Welcome Welcome back for another episode of Triple Click. For our first episode of March 2023. We are here. We've made it to March. Mm -hmm. We did it. It's
2: almost spring. I wrote it on my calendar. That's how badly I want it. I want you wrote spring, spring
1: like yeah. you put the date of spring yeah 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 in your calendar. March
2: twentieth. Nice. Can't wait
1: March twentieth. Okay, it's funny because like here in New York, it's been the mildest winter we've uh, I can remember. We in had a, long a time.
2: blizzard today and then it rained, which is worst case scenario. Mm. Welcome to Weather Pod. We're back. Hey talking man. about the weather on brand. Hey look, I <laughs> if we're gonna talk about weather,
0: I gotta say it snowed like eight inches here in Portland or something, and it has been a total winter wonderland slash mm-hmm. disaster mm-hmm. over the weekend. A lot Of places closed down, a lot of a uh, lot of yeah, ice on the road. That's
2: that's the situation here. It's gonna snow again for the next few days, mm-hmm. so I'm just Aside from today,
1: it. it's been the mildest winter, is my point. So <laughs> it almost feels like it's ready. Well, spring. you can
2: come over anytime you want to build a snowman. We got yeah. we got it, we got the stuff for <laughs> can it. Can you
1: sing? Can you sing that song? We got to a me? whole song that we could sing about that if we want to. Yeah, I would like to hear that.
0: Jason, do you remember the song about that that was about Destiny, where I was like, do you want to do a raid, man? Or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And oh I God. wound up writing all the lyrics of the Extremely whole song. Good. Extremely good. Kind of good. appropriate. We're recording this on the day that there is a new huge Destiny expansion is... coming out that I don't think any of us is going to play. Yeah,
1: Maddie Kirk, Kirk messaged me, is like, I kind of want to play it. I was like, I resist the Is the that earth. what this episode's the about? The Just
0: a hard pivot
2: to us talking about Lightfall? Should we talk about that? Are Maybe we, it's like Maybe. it's like we just describe like a new brand of heroin that comes yeah. out every few months, and we're like, should no, we get really, back into it, really it? Is. guys? What do you it think? Is. Heroin comes in brands, right? Is that the, is that anything? Well, I've
0: got this new monitor on my PC, and Destiny looks really good in ultra wide screen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, anyways, we're a listener supported <laughs> show. You support our gaming habit, however healthy or unhealthy that may be, from week it's to week. It's healthy
2: now. We're healthy. It is
0: very healthy. We're very healthy, lowercase g gamers here at Triple Click. We appreciate your support, and if you want to support us making this show, well, you can do so by becoming a Maximum Fun member at MaximumFun.org dot org slash join. There are no ads on this show, except I guess for the promos we run for other Max Fun shows. But you don't have to listen to us talk. About I don't know mattresses or therapy apps or whatever, um, that's that's more of a thing you'll hear on other shows, not this one because we're <laughs> listener supported. So uh, maximumfund.org/slash/join is where you can do that. And another way that you can support our show, we have we're going to be doing something kind of fun with this in the near future. But if you like TripleClick, if you've listened to TripleClick for a while and you have you know, some thoughts on why, like why you like the show that you would like to share and maybe have be shared on the show. Mm-hmm. Well, we would love for you to share that with us. So you can send emails to member stories at org. You can also leave us a voicemail at a phone number that'll be down in the show notes. And uh, yeah, you might, you might get your... Uh, get your triple-click tale told on the show <laughs> at a future date. Triple-click so,
2: tales. Is this part of the <laughs> Tales series, or is yes, it not yes, canon with yes, that? Yes. Tales right. of triple-click.
0: Tales of triple-click. <laughs> so anyways, uh, there's the info for that. It's out of the show notes. And, um, you know, no pressure or anything. No big deal. But if you want to share a story, we would welcome it. All right, let's get on to the uh, to the meat of this episode. Jason, take us away.
1: So today we're talking about JRPG storytelling and mechanics and mysteries, but really I just want to talk about Octopath Traveler 2, which is Jason a game I've been punches through the thin veneer yep. and yep. raving about for uh, the past couple of weeks. So this game
0: I would like to say this is a, a game that Jason called the Elden Ring of JRPGs and also possibly Game of
1: the Year in the same newsletter. Interesting. Interesting I guess I called you called it, it House of House the House of the that, Year. That's true. Um, that's true. So uh uh Octopath Traveler Two is A sequel to a game from 2018 that I did not really like, love all that much. That was the Mm -hmm. type of game that, like, a lot of reviewers fell for because of the aesthetics and the production values, which were great. Um, (laughs) You wow. meant like fell in love with, not fell for the ruse. Fell in love with it. <laughs> Okay, okay, for, okay. Like, I, thought, I thought
2: we were really coming out hot here.
1: No, but... no, 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 no. They I fell see, for they it fell in as in they were enamored of it. it. Yeah. The suckers. <laughs> they, they, they got
2: uh, taken in by its wiles. It, did, it does have
1: aesthetic wilds. <laughs> they uh, A lot of reviewers fell for that game's production values, but structurally inform- uh, it was kind of a mess. It was formulaic, it was grindy, it was anonymous. Octobath Traveler 2 fixes all those problems and, and more. And um, it's just a fantastic game for reasons that we will get into soon. But first, before we even talk about it, I want to introduce a new taxonomy. Oh, man. I yes. Think, I believe. Finally. It's been a minute. It's, it's, we're overdue for a new taxonomy. Kirkhamati, I have a thesis to share with you two. I believe that all video games can be summed up as either one of two things they are either action or adventure. <laughs> <laughs>
0: gameplay
2: yes. story
1: there we go <laughs> they can either be flow games or thought games is the way that i like to put it mm-hmm. um, I like they can also uh, most games or, or many games also really take uh, parts of them are one and parts of them are the other mm-hmm. and uh, sure. a float by of flow course. game i am of course talking about the kind of uh instinctive action y kind of flow state that a game will put you in whether you're just kind of sliding tiles in 3s or jumping over mushroom uh goombas in Super Mario Brothers or I don't know hack and slashing in God of War and of course mm-hmm. by thought I mean the actual decision making and giving things thought stepping back and saying hey I want to think about this for a second whether that's I don't know, um, Starcraft puzzles and Professor Mm -hmm. Layton Mm -hmm. or making up strategies and tactics ogre games that make you step back and think picking what to do next in civilization. And obviously a lot of games, probably most games um, mix the two and have different parts that are flow state, different parts that are thought state. Um, and I think JRPGs specifically tend to be more about flow state. A lot of kind of turn-based battles systems, even though they ostensibly would require you to have some strategy, most of the time you're just kind of like going through the motions, either mashing mm-hmm. the fight button or just kind of like if you're on a boss, maybe mashing the fight button and then also healing occasionally. But really you're just going into the flow of it. And that can be enjoyable to an extent. But also a lot of the time in JRPGs you're also just kind kind of like going through the motions. You're walking to a town. You're going up to people, talking to people. You're not really thinking a lot as you do it. You're just kind of going through the flow. And again, that is a certain type of gameplay. I don't think it's a problem. But I found personally over the course of my gaming career, so to speak, that I really like games that have an emphasis on the thought or, or put kind of at least blend the thought in with the flow to the point where you are really, you really feel like you are making decisions constantly. And the games that I enjoy most with the exception of threes tend to have thought in some capacity. When I think about recent games, for example, um, maybe, uh, 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 the Case of the Golden Idol, that's entirely thought. Return of the Oberdin, that's entirely thought. Mm-hmm. Outer Wilds, that's a lot of flow because the exploration itself is flow, but the game itself and trying to figure out the story and the mysteries and stuff are all thought. Elden Ring, that's a really good example of a mix of flow yeah, and thought. Yeah, I was thinking that of that as my next the, example. The action itself is flow, um, but the story stuff and the mysteries and the exploration, you have to spend a lot of time thinking Uh, in order to piece everything together. So I bring all this up to say that one of the reasons, really the main reason that I am so in love with Octopath Traveler 2, is that it blends those two together in a really smart way in that thought is prioritized over everything. You are constantly making decisions and having to think about how to proceed. So when you're in combat... um, you always have to think because of this unique break system that we'll get into in a little bit that makes you just be making decisions constantly. And then when you're outside of combat, instead of, as in most JRPGs, where you might just go and explore a town and talk to everybody and then move on to the next town, you actually have to do a lot of thinking because you run into all these side quests that, yes, Kirk, I called the Elden Ring of JRPGs in a recent (laughs) newsletter because these side quests give you kind of a couple of breadcrumbs and then expect you to follow the trail to find... uh, Hansel and Gretel, or whatever, to take the analogy to the next level there. Um, they really they create these little mysteries that you have to think about, and, and they're really fun in that way. So I think that, that kind of using that as a taxonomy to analyze games like this helps me at least understand why I enjoy a game like this so much, because it feels like it's constantly just... Uh, requiring me to use my brain and I find that with games that are flow I kind of bounce off of them a little bit more quickly Um, certainly I'm not spending 60 hours sinking into a game that is entirely flow the way I have with Octopath Traveler 2 Um, so yeah, I'm curious to hear, well, so Kirk, you've played a little bit of it. I'm curious to hear what you think of the game, first of all, from what you played and whether you think my thesis holds up. Yeah, I'm interested in your thesis. I mean, I've played, uh, four or
0: five hours of the game. I like it. I think it's really cool. Um, and we can talk some about why, but I actually, yeah, I want to focus a little on this flow versus thought thing. It's almost like, two different gears that you get into when you're playing a game. Like you've acknowledged, right, that most games aren't entirely one thing or the other. And that is true for most of these taxonomies that we've done, right? There's uh, there's overlap. Some games kind of lean more in one direction than the other. And then some extreme examples are like really far in one way or the other. But it is like how much a game shifts between those two things and how elegantly it does can be a big part of the enjoyment of the game. Elden Ring is a good example where you can play that as just a flow game. I think there are people who just, they just flow, man. You just get in the zone and you're just playing and there's kind of nothing impeding you from just going to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and exploring and kind of, you know, you might get kind of stuck for a second because it's a hard fight or you're lost, but you don't actually have to engage too much with the puzzles or the mysteries for most of the
1: game. Yeah, although the equipment, there's some thought involved in your strategizing in terms of equipment oh, well, and items and skills Right, but you uh, know what I mean?
0: Like By and large, it's a pretty flow state kind of a yeah, game. You just play it and yes. go. And yes. then there's this layer on top of it that you can shift into at any time and that the game kind of urges you into where suddenly you really are in a very thoughtful you know, uh, mindset, which can then be really fun. With Octopath 2... I don't know. I'm definitely in kind of a flow state with the game a lot. I think that it kind of flows along, and that's for a couple of reasons. It's partly the way that combat works, and it's partly the way that the writing works. So this is a game where you, like the first game, there are eight main characters who all feel like they would ordinarily be side characters in a role-playing game. And the way I think of this game, what I think is such a cool idea about the first one, and is executed much better in this one, is that it's like they removed the silent protagonist from the JRPG or just from the RPG. And they said, what if instead of having this kind of empty vessel of a character who everybody orbits for the story, we just removed them entirely and then had the whole story just be about the interesting side characters that everyone always says are the best characters and the best stories anyways. And then the story was just a series of loyalty quests that gradually overlap more and more and more and become kind of this tapestry rather than the loyalty quest being the best part of what's otherwise. a just chosen one narrative or whatever in an RPG. So that's the structure of this game. And the first game I didn't love either. I played three or four of the act ones and then just kind of went and played something else. And that was because a lot of the characters were pretty tropey, or very tropey, actually, and uninteresting. And what I'm finding in this game is, it's not that the characters in the stories aren't tropey, they're really tropey still. They're I don't actually have to think too much about what's going to happen because each one is this little, you know, serving like, individual serving of a little story where it's like, oh, I am the son of the king and the king is old and my war loving brother is really powerful and leads the army. And the king says he wants me to take over because I understand peace. But then my brother betrays both of us and kills the king and he takes the kingdom. It's like, okay. <laughs> like, or another one is like, I I have been framed for the murder of my family and now I'm in prison and I need to get vengeance on the, you know, friend of mine who betrayed me. Like they're all like that so far. I know they are, there are kind of variations and twists, but they're well enough written or interesting enough, they subvert the tropes enough that I'm, like, enjoying them. But actually, I'm kind of just flowing along. And I think that's partly because of where I'm at in the story. And I'm curious how this compares to where you are, Jason, since you're near the end of the game. But it is like this; these early goings of this game are actually very flow-like because it's just you know, learning the the ropes of a JRPG combat system and then just going through these, like, pretty familiar, pretty cliched stories that are still enjoyable enough for me to like and, of course, look and sound absolutely gorgeous. And so it's just very pleasant to play.
1: So, okay, I want to uh, just make one more point on thought and then I want to throw it to you, Maddie. I know you haven't played Octopath Traveler, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this dichotomy and JRPG storytelling in general. But first, Kirk, I, I just want to say, so when I think about thought... On a macro level in a game, I think another part of it is kind of like mapping out your or kind of even figuring out what to do, um, what you're going to do, your kind of mental task list. Okay, I'm going to go over here and then I'm going to do this quest and it'll lead me over there and then I'm going to do that and it'll take me there. And I think that there's kind of structurally there's a difference in a game that has this big flashing marker system where it tells you exactly where to go and what to do every time you highlight a quest, which feels like more of a flowy approach because you don't have to give it any thought, versus an Elden Ring. And so when you say I, I kind of disagree with with the the concept that you could play Elden Ring just as a flow, because I think even kind of putting together in your head, like, oh, Blade said that a falling star hit over there, but I don't know exactly where it is, so I'm going to chalk that up to my mental to-do list, or write it in my, my diary that I'm keeping next to me, or whatever, and then I'm going to have to take care of this other thing, and then I want to go back to the to the, uh, round table. Yeah, I wasn't speaking so, in absolutes. It's not Tetris Effect. Like, I mm-hmm. understand that you do
0: have to think. It's just a pretty flowy game as a general well, experience. Yeah,
1: I I just mean that nature. And we've talked about checkpoints in Elden Ring or markers in Elden Ring and how uh, appealing a game is without them. That to me has always just been more appealing to have to actually give it some thought to what you're doing next and and put it together. And anyway, Octopath 2 has that in spades. So I might I mean, I've picked up the game and played for two hours without following any of like the main quest lines and just being like, okay, so I have to bring this person using my path actions, which are these character actions you can take outside of combat like guiding someone or dueling someone or stealing from someone an npc um so i'm going to use a path action because this woman says that her she was engaged to marry someone but has never even met him and wants to meet him so i'm going to go find him and oh while i'm there i can also go explore this secret dungeon that i just found but haven't had a chance to visit yet and then i'm going to go do that and then this and then that and that sort of kind of Planning out is part of the thought experience in in my head, and I think that applies to Octopath 2, especially as you get further and further in the game. The combat we can talk about in a bit, but yeah, Maddie, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this taxonomy and also how it applies to JRPGs and, and stuff like that.
2: Yeah, I really like this taxonomy, although it is kind of breaking my brain because I never thought about games this way. So that's great. I'm going to spend the next few weeks <laughs> my trying job. to decipher my goal whether yeah. Metroid Prime is mostly flow because I feel like as I'm mm. playing it, I'm also thinking about what I did last. That's a and good yet, question. I would have said mm. um at the beginning of your description it's entirely flow because I'm just I'm running, jumping, ball mode, I'm I'm flowing all over the place here, but I'm always analyzing, I'm reading text logs, I'm thinking the whole time. And there's even puzzles as to where the Chozo lore is. This is a Metroid Prime episode, right? But yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> let's see.
0: Can we stay on Metroid Prime for a second? Like, the, <laughs> I, So I've been playing through Metroid Prime as well and also continuing to play Dead Space Remake. Mm-hmm. And there's definitely an interesting difference along the lines of this yes. sort of dichotomy is that in Dead Space, it's a lot more flow because I'm going and doing things like I'm going and now getting whatever. You're I on discrete
2: tasks that you can barely stuff. accomplish due to the high octane environment you're in. Yes. Well, it's
0: always like, well, the plants are going to kill us all, so you need to go deal with the plants. They're like, oh, we're, <laughs> the engines are broken, so you need to restart the engine. But in that game, you just press a button and a little laser pointer tells you where to go, mm-hmm. and then you just follow the line and you're going to fight some monsters and press a button, and then some people will tell you to go somewhere else. Where in Metroid. Prime, it is a lot more thinky yes. because you have to shift gears a lot out of that flow state because you can't just run around because you a lot of times don't know where you're supposed to be going <laughs> yeah. and have to remember where you were and yeah, yep. what this unlocks, yep. etc.
2: And that was one of my favorite things about Elden Ring was that shift between flow and thought. And I agree with you, Jason, that the fact that it blends those two things is what's so exciting about it, because I really like the thought parts. I mean, we've talked about Case of the Golden Idol a lot, and I agree that's almost entirely thought. But to yeah. have that switch between how great *From Soft Combat feels and then also the big picture of what does Ronnie really want me to do? That's so weird. What is really going on here is Mm. extremely pleasurable as a game experience. But also um, on the thought tip and the JRPG tip, I know it's a bit of a topic change, but I I do want to hear more from you two about why you think sometimes really trope-laden storytelling works and why sometimes it doesn't. Because that's also fascinating
1: Yeah well so real quick Maddie I think on Metroid Prime one of the Thought aspects of it one of the biggest Thought aspects of it is having to Remember what the thing like Discovering a new item and then remembering All the times where you've you've run Into things that you can now Unlock and just going back and Mm backtracking But yeah Kirk I know you have thoughts On video game JRPG tropes Specifically and when they work and when they Don't work do you have a a kind of Theory there on what what makes them work? (sighs) If you
2: need a thought starter, one of my comparison points was Persona 5, which I would describe as having some very stereotypical high schoolers in it and yet still being extremely pleasurable in the way that Gossip Girl can be pleasurable or Riverdale can be pleasurable.
0: Yeah, I don't have a finalized way of thinking about this, but Octopath 2 has been making me think about it in particular because the game is so fashioned as this nostalgia object, despite being a new game telling a new story. It's designed to look like pixel art, like look like a sort of super nintendo era like a 16-bit jrpg that's what the characters look like but the look of this world for anyone who hasn't seen it is three-dimensional there's really strong depth of field so you'll be focused on a character in the foreground and the you know town behind them will be out of focus like there's a camera sitting down in a little
1: diorama Mm -hmm. a diorama is the best way to put it that's what it feels like
0: there are modern lighting effects, so you'll be carrying a, you know, a torch, and it sort of lights all of these little things. Everything looks so beautiful, and of course, the music is really, really good in this game, especially the nighttime field music in any of the different regions. It's always this woman singing, and like, I'll probably play some of it behind me right now, just because, like, really, really beautiful. I mean, I'll just, I'm honestly playing the game 50% because that, that music. I just want to hear the next beautiful track. Hi everyone, Kirk here as I edit the episode. I just wanted to credit the composer on Octopath Traveler 2. It's Yasunori Nishiki, who is also the composer on the first game. And while I didn't love the first game, I did love the music and I love the music for Octopath Traveler 2. Just like this nighttime Enya stuff, man. It's so good. Okay, back to the episode. So there's this kind of nostalgia play going on with this game that I don't mind at all. And that I have a hard time differentiating from the nostalgia that I feel when I play, say, Final Fantasy VI or Suikoden II, the games that we've played through together. Mm -hmm. Because it's weird. It's like back then in the late 90s, people were just making games. And I don't think they were made to evoke nostalgia, even though... They are often very sort of uh, emotional and nostalgic stories. There's a lot of sepia-toned flashback. There's a lot of melodrama. But they were modern stories being told at the time. Now, when I play those games, I feel nostalgic for just, you know, the past. It's like watching an old movie. If you watch a 70s movie, it just makes you feel nostalgic because everyone's talking on corded phones. This game makes me feel that same thing. And I allow for all of these cliches because they all play a role in that feeling and that really works for me I just am you know I'm like well yeah of course it's this really you know it's this one story about succession in a kingdom that I've heard a million times but this whole thing is kind of a throwback it all feels like a cliche so it's fine and I let that go and then Maddie you mentioned persona which is interesting because persona isn't that it's Mm -hmm. you know it's set in the modern day it's all about the internet it's about modern kids but it is about high school, and so mm-hmm. it makes me kind of nostalgic for being a student. So I guess my only, the only thought I'm coming up with right now anyways is that there's some element of nostalgia in almost every JRPG I've played, whether you're actually playing as high school kids or you're playing a game that reminds you of what it was like when you were in high school. <laughs> and I know that can't be the case because not everyone was in high school when they played these uh-huh. games. Not everyone is my age or, you know, our, our age range. Mm-hmm. And yet it's still there. It's still something that I notice and think about.
2: something to a party being similar to a clique, though. And when was the last time you were in a clique of five people? Maybe mm. it was high
1: school. I don't mm-hmm. know. I can kind I mean, of see I'm in the triple clique of three people. Well, the triple uh, clique well, yeah, of that's three, three people yeah. three right here. But... <laughs> um, yeah, so Kirk, I just I don't think... Well, I'm curious to hear your thoughts as you play more, but I don't think that the main appeal of this game is those main stories. Like, the stories are fine, whatever. Sure. The characters are fun. But really, the appeal of this game, at least for me, is being in this world that just feels so vivid and rich with detail and beautiful and full of, like, these NPCs. That The the thing I've enjoyed most about this game is just going around and using the path actions that let you see NPC descriptions and just seeing how all these people... because. Everybody has, if you go around and you use that path action on NPCs in any town, everybody has their own little personality and like twist or subversion or trope, and some of them connect to others. I mean, one of the highlights of this game for me was just getting to this new town, and there's a castle, and you go into the town, and there's this um, uh, uh, princess standing outside. And you talk to her, and she says something boring, whatever. It doesn't really matter. But then you check her description by using your path actions, and it's like, this princess, it's basically, this is me paraphrasing, but this princess has been surrounded by suitors for the past year, but she isn't interested in any of them. Uh, if only people knew that she was secretly in love with her Childhood friend, and then you find the childhood friend, and again, this is all entirely just completely like random NPC detail it has nothing to do with the main story. You find the childhood friend and it turns out it's a woman, and mm-hmm. oh hey that's this cool little detail that you just find in the game, and that sort of thing is everywhere there are like probably two dozen towns in this game, and each of them is full of NPCs with their own just like rich backstories and details and then on top of that you'll just find secrets like. Like hidden all throughout the world map. Another one, and I'm sorry if this is spoiling things for people, but I just can't resist like sharing all this stuff. Um, you can find uh, you can find this guy just randomly in the map. This little guy who is like um, a soldier, and his his description. He's described like his NPC name is described as like amateur story or soldier or training soldier or something. And Hikari, who's one of your characters, has this ability to duel with people. And when you talk to this guy, he says, "I need to train." I wish someone would train with me. And so you use Sakari and you duel with him. And then after the duel, um, you can kind of cycle in this game. You just press a button to cycle between day and night. So after the duel, he's knocked out on the floor. But then if you cycle a day and then you go back to him, you'll see that he's uh, become he's no longer like a trainee soldier. Now he's like a, a, a training soldier or something like that. And if you try to duel him, he'll be a little bit stronger. And you can keep doing this. And he just gets stronger and stronger as you duel him more and more. Because he's like training. And again, this is just some random NPC. It has nothing to do with the main plot. And eventually you can get him so strong that he just kicks your ass. And then now he's arrogant soldier. And he'll be like, uh, the, ma- the trainee has become the master now. I no longer need you. Um, <laughs> (laughs) And it's just so funny. These little details are just so funny and rich, and just really make the game, um, the game's world feel just like um, this incredible place that you want to spend all this time in exploring.
0: Yeah, I mean, based on what I've played, I'm just reacting to what I've played. You know, I think there's it makes me think some thoughts about JRPG storytelling. But to kind of explain the structure of this game, the way that it seems to work, based on what you're saying and and what I've played, it starts out with A mostly undirected series of first acts that you can do as you build your party. And there is even some, like, thinking, I suppose, to use this breakdown in the beginning, where you choose your starting character, and then afterward, you're actually, it's not clear what you're supposed to do. You're just sort of at the open world, and you can do whatever. And then you realize, oh, if I just look at the map, it says where all the other characters are. So I guess I just. Go get them, and then you have to go get them. So there is already some, you know, open-endedness. It's not telling you, okay, now go get the next person. They're right here. You could just get on a ferry and go across the ocean to the other side of the map and get a completely different person if mm-hmm. they look cooler. And then as you play, you get more and more characters in your party, and then each character has a unique ability. And you, would, I know you explained this sort of, but to make it really clear to people, there are eight characters, Octopath, and each one has... This unique ability sometimes they change from day to night, and you can change it from they day to night. Do.
1: So they all have different abilities. Okay, they all have and different and abilities at day and night, and but it's some like, of the abilities are similar. So they all do a bunch of core functions, and some of them crossover with one another.
0: Yes, so there's crossover, and there's basically there's an ability that lets you learn things about a person, an ability that lets you get people to come with you, an ability that lets you steal things from someone or abilities from someone. Those are you know that kind of thing, mm-hmm. and. This guy Oswald, for example, has, he's the one with the Count of Monte Cristo back, back backstory where he's been wrongly imprisoned. Yeah, there's even some of that in his act one where his ability is that he can like study someone and learn about them if they're, you know, close enough to his level. And so you're in this prison and you have to learn about people and it's very fun because you'll talk to a guy and he seems kind of shifty and then you study him and you realize oh okay, this guy's actually a rat and he's mm-hmm. been turning people into the guards forever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um and that's really cool. So then out in the world, you can I can imagine how as you build a party, they become this multi-pronged puzzle solving uh, sort of apparatus that I can adjust and move through the world and while, yeah, you can go do their stories and learn what's going on with them narratively the fun of the game, and it sounds like this is what I'm very excited about with this game is that there are all of these little hidden puzzles that you can solve all these different ways with your cool little toolkit depending on which characters you have mm-hmm. and how creative you can be with their their individual actions the thing I want to throw out there and this is for all three of us since we've all played this game is this is true to the lineage of a lot of the JRPGs that we've played, especially Suicode in 2, right? I'm not like imagining this, that a lot of these opaque mysteries, these things where you go talk to someone with a certain person in your party and then you come back later and there's something has changed and there are all these little hidden stories. Isn't this kind of the, very similar to what was going on in Suicode in 2?
1: Yeah, to some extent. going 2, I would argue, is more opaque and there's a lot more of like you kind of need to have a walkthrough. Really, all of this, I mean, a lot of this lineage can be traced back to the NES slash like Atari slash arcade days back when they wanted you to buy the strategy guide and like call up Nintendo Power Hotline to, to, <laughs> to, get your, to get your clues for what to do next. That's why a lot of that stuff had esoteric secrets. I think this is a lot more fair in its side quests, although there's some that I still haven't figured out or some little little bits and pieces of the game that I still am trying to piece together. Um, and that's why I mean, you you mocked or gently mocked earlier when I called this the Elden Rings of JRPGs, but it's really similar in a lot of ways. And I think the the secrecy. Of the economy, I, I only
0: laugh because it's just a little bit Skyrim with guns. Like well, calling anything I mean. the Elden Ring of anything you just have makes to, me laugh. I
1: mean, I hope you saw some of the irony in in that uh, in that Substack newsletter headline. Um, but I also I want to talk about the combat because I think the combat is really like that's what you spend a lot of your time in this game doing is fighting battles. And I think it's really worth bringing up because it's just so much better than your average turn-based system. And Kirk, I think um, it kind of it gets more complicated more complicated, and more interesting the more you play, as, as is often the case with these kinds of games. So the way the combat works is it's turn-based. Um, you see your character's turn order on the top of the screen. Um, and every enemy you encounter has uh, weaknesses, right? And so when you meet a new enemy, you'll see on the bottom of their kind of uh, avatar, whatever, the picture of them, you'll see a number and then you'll see a bunch of kind of question marks. And the question marks each represent a different weapon type or element type. So an enemy might be weak to spears and fire or whatever it is. And the number if you, every time you hit them with one of those weak points, that number goes down. And so if it starts at five, you hit them five times with different swords um, and that's a weakness, then they go to zero. And when it hits zero, they're called broken and they take more damage and they're stunned for a turn so they can't do anything on that turn and basically they're just weaker Um, and so as you play more and more there's also this whole boost system where you can like give your uh, characters extra Uh, Power or extra hits using a kind of a special currency called bonus points or boost points that go up every turn. Um, And so as you go, this gets a lot more elaborate and complicated because eventually you'll get to bosses where you really have to start thinking and doing less of the kind of easy flow state, like, okay, I'll just smash this random encounter with my dagger a bunch of times and that'll be it. Um, And Kirk, it's worth noting that in the chapter ones, most of the enemies you face are weak to whatever your character has. That's so it's obvious. So a little, yeah. little more straightforward. Um, so when you get to bosses, you have to spend a lot more time strategizing and thinking, okay, I'm going to break this boss on that turn. So I want to have my characters ready to go to do as much damage as possible on that turn or else the boss will kick my ass on the following turn. So how am I going to do that? And oftentimes, if you're doing it right, you have to plan like two, three turns ahead, like full rounds ahead in order to optimize that damage dealing and there's a lot of cool ways you can do that with items and skills you can equip each of your characters with like a sub job that gives them a suite of new skills um And so and you can combine them in really cool ways, and then all of your characters get these like limit breaks that they can do as well that also add cool new powers. Like one of the limit breaks, I think the dancer's limit break is you can turn any ability from just targeting one person to targeting all of the people. So all the enemies are all of your party members. And you can really break the game with some of the combinations here, which again is very reminiscent of Elden Ring. And with like that perfect combination of kind of like flow and thought, it winds up being that bosses are super super fun and and really fun to just break apart. I got my Hikari, the warrior character, dealing like 30,000 damage per hit when a boss is stunned, which is just super fun. It's just incredibly fun to break the game and know you did it because you were just planning ahead or like doing doing smart combinations or whatever it is. So, I think that's worth noting as well with this game specifically that that's like a big part of the appeal um maddie have you played any jrpgs whose combat systems that you've actually enjoyed and if so <laughs> what what is made this you a trick enjoy question
2: them? Uh, well i mean <laughs>
1: kingdom hearts doesn't count
2: i know well see the reason why kingdom hearts would count for me is because of the same reason that i like final fantasy 7 remake and why i uh, will be sad if if part two of that gets delayed and i'm still really looking forward to it is because anything turn-based I don't know what it is. I just feel I have trouble getting immersed. Let's put it that way. Mm. I, I like I like some real time combat to be happening in order for me to really get into it. Uh, otherwise, I feel like I'm. I don't know. I can't. I can't stay focused on it. Uh, so that that change is huge for me. But I will say, like I got pretty far in Persona Five because the way that that game is set up, it still manages to feel like action matters and it's always happening and i think some of that is sound design and some of that is also the stacking of certain kinds of skills which is not on the level of what you're describing jason where you need to plan ahead that far but there's still a little bit of planning ahead whereby you're like okay this person has certain kinds of attacks if they do this then the next character in line can do that to build upon the existing attack and that's very delightful. I, I would yeah, prefer you might not like turn based. Active Fast
1: Traveler. Too, I think I might. Into, it is very persona like uh, in that sense, in the weakness sense.
2: I think so. Although I think I would still probably never like the turn based combat. The part of what you're describing that excites me is the Elden Ring storytelling of it all, which I really enjoy. And and I think I would like reading the item descriptions and, and discovering stories and having that be its own reward. Like exploring is its own reward. I mean, I'm a fan of Metroid after all. And also Elden Ring. So that part excites me, even if the turn based part doesn't necessarily.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree about Persona Five in that the combat it's so punchy. The animations and the sound design are so yep. killer. And it's it automates some things that Octopath Traveler 2 purposefully de-automates, and it moves a little bit faster. But they're actually mm-hmm. really interesting comparisons because, Jason, when you begin describing the combat system in Octopath Traveler 2, I'm sitting there thinking, okay, how would I be hearing this description if I hadn't played the game and had just played Persona? And it mm-hmm. starts out, you know, you're like, well, you know, each enemy has different weaknesses and you want to hit the weaknesses because then you break them if you hit the weaknesses. And that's mm-hmm. all. I mean, that is just Persona. Yeah, but there are super these, similar. But there are these crucial differences in that Octopath Traveler 2 makes you take, I think, time into consideration on a different level, which is pretty cool. Because in Persona, you break an enemy and they're down. And then if you break all the enemies, they're all down. And then you just get to do a ton of damage to them and then they're back up, right? That's the kind of... The exactly. sort of fulcrum around which all the combat cycles is this, get them all down, do that big funny attack where they all jump on them and do a big cloud of melee, and then <laughs> they come out and then you keep going. Or you beat them with with that attack. Where in Octopath, what's cool is you hit them with at their weak spot. A lot of times enemies don't immediately go down, unless it's like you said at the very beginning when they're just showing you how it works. But even where I am like a little later on, you have to hit them a few times and yeah, it shows you, you how many times you have down. to hit them. Mm-hmm. So it gives you that information. So you're looking at the number thinking, okay, like Throne, for example, who's the thief character, her ult, like, which charges pretty fast, lets her do two attacks. So she can do two attacks and that lowers them even more. And then you can also do the, uh, whatever it's called, the charge up thing, where you get multiple attacks on your turn. The boosting, so yeah. Boosting, right. So you can like advance, you can bank attacks or you can hold your attacks back you can block for a turn to build up a boost for next turn with the goal of getting them into the broken states so you can do maximum damage it reminds me a little bit of bravely default too i guess mm-hmm. because that it's that game same, also same right team, same developers yeah. um that game also had some of that sort of bank your moves and yeah. then you have a debt that you have to wait and pay off i do really like that i think it's a like smart way to add a layer of complexity to a system that works basically like Persona's system which is mm-hmm. kind of an if it ain't broke don't fix it kind of situation like it's a good fundamental system and I like how they've how they've adjusted it.
2: Yeah. I will also say that one of the exceptions to my turn-based rule is Fire Emblem, because that also mm. involves spacing, and also, yeah. it doesn't necessarily have a time limit on a fight, but you can only take so many hits before you die, so it always kind of feels like the clock is ticking in a, in a Fire Emblem scenario, and, and I would guess also a Tactics Ogre, haven't played it, but it's a similar turn-based scenario. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, for some reason, still always makes me feel the fun kind of stressed out, and it kind of sounds to me like Octopath is borrowing from some of that in that you're planning multiple attacks ahead of time. And in Fire Emblem Engage, you also still have the rock, paper, scissors of it all where you're like certain attacks are good against certain kinds of enemies, but I have to make Mm -hmm. sure the right enemies are in the right spot to do those attacks that's very fun to me. It's it's the thought. <laughs> the thought above the flow that really helps.
0: It really is. I mean, it's like these games all are adding thought layers on top of the flow, where Persona 5 really is pretty flow-heavy. You have to think sometimes for bosses, but a lot of it is just the music's going, you're just yep. fighting dudes, and it really is just like a flow.
1: Yeah, I think, so that's that's a cogent point. I think with Persona 5, you're not really thinking a lot. I mean, occasionally you might have to decide yeah. like, do I want to attack or heal mm-hmm. with this turn? Right. But like most of the time you're not really giving it that much thought. You're just kind of selecting the weak point and that's the end of it. In Octopath, especially with the boss battles, there's a lot more because as the bosses get more challenging and more elaborate they present really interesting scenarios. Some of them might have weak points locked off until you defeat like some of their minions. Others might start casting a special spell or something that you know is going to wipe your party or hurt your party and so you have to get them knocked out in order to stop it and so you have to kind of look at the turn order and be like okay mm-hmm. they're coming up in two turns how can I do this do I have to start going into my items do I have to use all my boost points right now to knock them out before the attack goes or mm-hmm. do I wait and risk that they're gonna like mm-hmm. say okay I, my character's hit points are pretty high maybe I'll just suck it up and take the attack in anyway yeah. and there's a lot of decision like that. making that, that goes into it. That sounds a lot it. more
2: like a fire emblem to me in a good yeah way.
1: it's just there's no there's no spatial positioning.
0: Right of course. But yeah, But to throw another game in there this is also a lot like Marvel's Midnight Suns yeah.
2: Yes, oh mm. my god, you're so right. So especially
0: the later battles in that game. Once you start taking on the super tough enemies that can regenerate health, yes. there are so many times where I wound up in those situations where the fight is starting and I'm like, okay, I gotta burn everything down just to get these two enemies off the yep. board. Mm-hmm. How am I gonna do it? And then you <laughs> yeah. wind up in this much more kind of min max strategic thinking layer mm-hmm. than just, all right, well, I'll attack the first few guys and we'll see what happens. Which yeah. is, yeah, really pleasant, especially when a game can sort of manage that gear shift like it can pull you from one mode of thinking to the other Mm -hmm. effectively which all of these games I would say do pretty well
1: oh yeah yeah it's really smart and it's like it's constantly presenting you with these decisions and I think that's just what has made it so interesting for me and said it so good for me is like it actually saying hey you have to think about what you're going to do next you can't just go through the motions the way you would in most turn-based games or most Mm -hmm. jrpg combat Mm -hmm. systems all right you're
2: kind of selling me on it Maybe yeah, we'll it's it. really good. <laughs>
1: it's a pretty
0: cool that, game. I do, I do really like what I've played so far. I'm really you'd really
1: up. like the music. You'd really like the the, the little descriptions. I think you might be tempted, Maddie. You might be tempted to skip all the cutscenes of the main character stories because, like, the main character stories. <laughs> uh, that's not why I'm playing the game. I think they're fine. Some are better. I mean, I skip a
2: lot of Fire Emblem Engage cutscenes.
0: <laughs> yeah. So it's it's you know. a head
1: and shoulders above Fire Emblem Engage for what a story storytelling. <laughs> <of. laughs> so just to give you just to give you a taste of it. So yes, Kirk Kirk kind of summed up a couple of them. I picked my starting character was Throne, who's this thief who like lives in the back alleys of this like New York like city. Um, by the way the, the game it's it's not set in like a medieval fantasy world. It's set in like a turn of the eighteen of the nineteenth century, like industrial revolution type mm-hmm. world with like a wild west section, with, like a samurai section and like a their deserts and snowy fields <laughs> set and the scholars. Theme park. <laughs> and, it really is it's, <laughs> it's like they're are different areas. Uh, yeah, west it, world, is exactly. west world. it is it's, it's set right, in thinking. Westworld. Um, <laughs> so Throne, her story is that she's like part of this gang of murderous thieves who like go on assassination missions and stuff. And she decides to break free of them by killing the people who run the organization and like winds up on this quest to, to find them and, and hunt them down and there's some cool stuff there um, again some of the stories are better than others there's one who's just like it's so funny in comparison one who's just whose story is entirely I want to go be a cool a big dancer in the big city I want to be a popular dancer and that's you might think that her story goes places but it doesn't that's the entirety <laughs> of her story is that she wants to be a dancer they I'm, really do feel like JRPG side characters which is nice because do.
0: even if a story is kind of whatever you play through it pretty quick and then you around yeah. the world and exploring and doing the, the fun
1: stuff. Other, another thing I wanted to note is two big things that I think make the most significant impact when it comes to changes from the first game. So one is that in the first game, it never really felt like the characters were connected because each of their stories, you just see them solo. And some of the stories, it didn't really make sense why like the the, the villainous thief was hanging out with this like pious cleric type. And it didn't really work. Um, for various reasons it felt like eight people on an independent adventures and like it made no sense that they were traveling together in this game first of all none of them are really either too good or too bad so it kind of makes sense that they're they're hanging out together they're all more in the kind of ranging from chaotic neutral to like uh to uh, like i don't know chaotic evil like a little bit of evil evil, here and there um, there's nobody who's like super great or anything except maybe Hikari. But um, more importantly, you, there's a lot, of, a lot more party banter, it's called, where you like press the plus button on your Switch and you'll see an optional little skit when they talk to each other. And this time, instead of just it being random little skits that happen every once in a while, they happen a lot more often and they happen during the story mission so you can see whoever's traveling with your party actually comment on what's going on, which really adds a lot of flavor to it. So in the story cutscenes, you still just see your one character character but in the optional party banter you see other people talking to them and being like oh how did you feel about this oh you look like you're struggling because of this and they actually talk about what's happening so it feels like they're traveling together um, a little thing
0: that i like is also just that in combat they'll just be like nice job hikari yeah way things, to go yeah, throw yeah. An a-. and it's uh-huh. it's very heavy-handed but actually it it sort it of helps. works <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it it helps. Helps. yeah it makes it mm-hmm. feel like they all know each other and the
1: other just real quick the other really important thing is that in the first game and this was the worst part. This was what really just made me not like that game very much. Um, or at least not love it. Um... Every single chapter followed the same formula. You get to a town, some cutscenes play. You use your path action. You go through a dungeon, and then there's a boss, and that's it. And that happened 31 times. There was one exception. <laughs> there four chapters. For I can't believe characters. you played that whole game, man. Well, weird. I was reviewing it. Yeah, I had to finish and you're, the, it. you're the JRPG man. too. Like um, it's, I'm yet to so grind. Fun. I haven't had to grind once in this game, and I'm basically almost done, which is nice. Um, so yeah, so it was just so formulaic. This game switches it up. Like some chapters, there is no bosses. Some chapters there's no dungeons some chapters like do things differently have two dungeons sometimes chapters mm-hmm. branch so it might be like with Throne for example after chapter one there's like mother's root and father's root because you're going mm-hmm. to find mother and father and so like, you'll find them places. with your knife yeah <laughs> and so exactly and so it just feels it's it's kind of some of the changes are subtle and small, but it just makes it feel so much better than the first game because you're not yeah, just following more the same formula over and mm-hmm. over again. And you don't know what to expect. There's a ton of variety, a ton of interesting stuff that happens. And yeah, man, this game, I could just go on about this game forever because I haven't been this hooked on a game since probably Elden Ring. And really, it's one of the best JRPGs maybe I've ever played. Like, I love it. Wow. It's just fantastic house um, of the year jason schreier yeah Ooh. i i love it i think it's awesome and i think yeah maddie i think even you would get a lot out of it
2: i mean best jrpg jason's ever played that means i might think it's okay
1: yeah exactly. it's a bold statement <laughs> all right why don't we uh we've given this enough thought so why don't we flow our way to uh the next segment we're gonna take a little break and then it's time for one more thing
2: If you have trouble falling asleep,
1: try sleeping with celebrities. Tell me about your view of of succulents. I'm not a a huge fan. It's a different kind of sleep podcast. There are some real benefits to parking illegally. Featuring remarkable guests and unremarkable topics.
0: There's two Orlando airports.
1: From the creator of Depression Mode with John Moe, it's sleeping with celebrities. Every week on Maximum Fun. Nighty-Night Sleepy Heads.
0: Hi, I'm Jesse Thorne, the founder of Maximum Fun, and I have a special announcement. I'm no longer embarrassed by my brother, my brother, and me. You know, for years, each new episode of this supposed advice show was a fresh insult, a depraved jumble of erection jokes, ghost humor, and Frankly, this is for the best, very little actionable advice. But now, as they enter their twilight years, I'm as surprised as anyone to admit that it's gotten kind of good. Justin, Travis, and Griffin's witticisms are more refined, like a humor column in a fancy magazine. And they hardly ever say bazinga anymore. So, after you've completely finished listening to every single one of all
1: of our other shows, why not join the McElroy Brothers every week, for my brother, my brother and me. All right, Kirk Maddie, it's time for one more thing. Maddie, take us away.
2: Okay. I saw Robocop for the first time. Pretty good. For movie. the first time. <laughs> it's so good, isn't I know. it? So
1: I'm so excited you
0: watch it. I love Robocop. <laughs> yeah it's yeah, a good movie
2: pretty good this was a really big hole in my personal canon and I feel very proud to have finally made it happen uh, this is there's nothing um, Kirk
1: enjoys more than like when people first watch classic 80s movies
2: I know I there's nothing I like more so if I get to do Fair. it myself I also it's, it's like I'm completing my own sense of joy it's one of the and great joys of life for yeah. sure yeah I have some more classic 80s movies that I'm going to try to complete uh, we'll see if I talk about them on the show or not if they're, if nice. they're as good as Rope I might, uh, TBD, but um, Robocop, a uh, classic sci-fi movie. Paul Verhoeven directed this, and I'm a big fan of his. I was really into Starship Troopers as a teenager, still kind of mm-hmm. my go-to example of satire if people want to yeah. understand what it is. And uh, I just, I have so much nostalgia for it, especially as like a teenager growing up during the War on Terror, the Forever War. And just, I mean- we all were surrounded by propaganda for that as teenagers or, you know, twenty somethings and watching Starship Troopers in that exact time period for me was just hit so right. And I think I would have really dug Robocop then. I still liked it a lot as an adult. Already knew what the deal would be in terms of the militarization of the police force, depiction of this uh, futuristic version of Detroit, and just the depiction of the future generally as being corporate controlled and like these this private corporation controlling the police force um, and turning a somewhat ordinary cocky cop into a cyborg, terrifying cyborg cop who you also feel pretty sorry for which I didn't actually expect. I kind of went in thinking Robocop would be a bad guy, Um, but he's not quite a bad guy. He's a sympathetic figure. And I thought that worked pretty well. I I thought it was pretty fascinating. Um, And I did want to shout out uh, one of the simplest Filmic techniques I've ever seen, but it really worked for me. So, if anybody's rewatching it and they want to think about this, uh, welcome to uh, Subtlety with all the weight of a <laughs> huge axe landing on your head. Um, the moment at the beginning when Murphy, who's the lead cop, human cop at the beginning, gets killed by a bunch of criminals, um, the shot. Position and the music is very similar to the moment significantly later in the movie when all the cops turn on him and they're all shooting at him. And there's so many moments where somebody is shooting at someone just like a comedic number of times. Like it's just really, I Mm -hmm. don't know, it feels like a Paul Verhoeven thing to be making violence comedic almost, like because of how extreme and absurd it is. And that marriage of those two moments really worked for me, where I was like, oh wow, like the cops are now presented as the same mm-hmm. as the criminals again, you know, ax shaped <laughs> subtlety here, but it still really worked for me. And uh, yeah. I dug it. I liked it a lot. Read some good articles about Robocop and satire afterwards. Really like Paul Verhoeven stuff. And uh, I recommend it also in, I do not subscribe to Amazon prime. I don't pay for it, but you can hey. watch it on there for free with ads. So even if um. you don't want to give Jeff Bezos any money, you can still watch Robocop. I'm sure I'm still paying him somehow. Yeah, you are whatever. giving him money by watching it. I don't care, ads, yes. Jason.
1: <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> <Third> <laughs> with nothing. Look, I have Amazon Prime. It's so
2: unavoidable. Like... What am I doing? Anyway, yeah, that's how I, I, mean, I watched it. If people want to check it out, I recommend it. Robocop, cool movie. Cool. That's yeah.
1: all. Kirk, what about you? What's your one more thing? I watched a cool movie too. It's a movie called Cocaine Bear, and you'll never guess what it's about. <laughs> is this, uh, as soon as I saw that name and the trailer and everything about it, I was like, this is like them trying to recreate Snakes on a Plane for like, the modern era.
0: So, well, Snakes on a Plane is pretty recent. They're, they're both the modern era.
1: It's not that recent. Um, that was like 15 years yeah, ago. Yeah, it was pretty long Hold on, ago. I'm going to look this up. <laughs> snakes on a Plane was 17 years ago, Kirk. 17. Wow, okay. 17 time years flies. Ago. So
0: it's the same kind of idea. Yes. Uh, but I would say a much more successful film overall and a really good time. So I'm sure everybody listening to this knows cocaine bear. Um, I'm not on social media, but I'm guessing that there's a lot of cocaine bear on social media. Um, this is based on a true story um, where a guy jumped out of a plane with a bunch of cocaine and then died. On impact, or his shoot didn't open, I can't remember. He dropped all the cocaine and they couldn't find all of it. And then it turned out that a bear ate a bunch of the cocaine and died. That's the true story. Yeah. And the, the filmmakers, um, this is directed by Elizabeth Banks, the wonderful comedic actress who now directs films. She directed, I think, Pitch Perfect 3 as well, but was the star of so many. Mm-hmm. You've seen her in everything. She's great. Um, she directed great this. And the question this movie asked is basically like, well, we know the bear died. But we don't know what happened. Um... Before In Between then. before then and also maybe the bear didn't die and <laughs> <sort of>
2: <laughs> what on? would happen if the bear was an apex predator on cocaine right
0: and um, and cocaine just turned a bear into a super powered bear which is basically the premise for this extremely extremely silly sort of comedy slasher you know animal attack movie along the lines of yes Sharknado or Deep Blue mm-hmm. Sea. Or um, Snakes on a Plane. Though I watched Snakes on a Plane. I mean, it was a long time ago. Evidently, it was 17 years ago. And I remember thinking, this sucks. Like, this movie is nowhere near as good as the premise. This whole thing just feels like a bit that shouldn't have been made. Mm -hmm. And it was just kind of slapdash and not very satisfying. This movie is really entertaining. Um, I went and saw it with some friends. Uh, Emily and I went to the theater. If you can see this in a rowdy theater full of people it 's really fun because everyone is reacting and because the movie is very much designed to be viewed that way it 's super funny it 's super silly it'll be gross and ridiculous and it's just it's very very funny but um it's also just a better put together movie like there's a there's real work put into the special effects of the bear. They really kind of did it. The bear looks amazing, and all the scenes with the bear are great there's one set piece in particular that involves Margot Martindale in an ambulance with the bear chasing the ambulance and a bunch of people that's the it's the the movie kind of peaks early. It's definitely the peak of the movie. But it's <laughs> awesome. And it had just been a long time since I'd been in the theater for that kind of like, whoa, ah, oh, oh, like everyone yelling and like laughing and cheering. And that alone was Was really fun.
1: Uh, Is it really, you say it peaks early. Does it really sustain across an entire movie? It feels like it should be a 20 minute sketch. (laughs) Well,
0: it's a 90 minute movie. Yes, it does. Um, It's a 90 minute movie. I wish that the climactic scene had been as great as the mid film ambulance set piece. So it was like, that was a little like, ah, if, if only they had had the climactic scene be just as uh, audacious and ridiculous. But yeah, no, of course, it's a 90-minute movie. You're sitting in a theater. You're having a beer. It it f- flies by. It's great. It's like the opposite of, you know, a three-hour Academy Award-nominated whatever drama. Like, it's, it's very much that kind of thing. And it's just funny to think I... The minute I heard about the movie and started talking about it with friends, I was like, this movie is going to destroy it at the box office. Mm-hmm. It did. It had a killer opening weekend. I bet this coming weekend there's a lot of people like me out there telling their friends, hey, if you want to have a good time, go see Cocaine Bear in the theaters. And it just seems like as much as the James Camerons and the Tom Cruises of the world are like, come to the theater for our big, amazing, impressive things and as impressive as Top Gun and Avatar are. A big draw is actually a movie like this, or a movie like Megan earlier mm-hmm. this year. These kind of silly, comedic, gross I out. should
2: note, we saw Megan a couple days ago, and that was part of why I watched RoboCop, because I was just on that robot action movie mm, kick. But RoboCop's sure, a sure. lot smarter than Megan. Megan's really fun, though. I will say that. When it would, I, and I, Yeah, we're going <laughs> to watch Megan, too, and I you bet gotta, it would have been fun
0: to see in theaters. Also, Ray yeah. Liotta's
1: last film, Cocaine Bear. Worth wow. That.
0: Yes. Um, yeah, they, they it's a, a funny a funny performance and, of course, a fitting role. Anyways, it's a funny movie. It's it's a good time. I'm sure everyone already knows about it, but I just wanted to kind of co-sign seeing it in theaters because uh, there, there are worse things you could
1: do with a Friday evening. Co- Cocaine Bear also could have been the title of Ray Liotta's most famous role, Goodfellas. It could have just been called Cocaine Bear. <laughs> <laughs>
0: this really is kind of a Goodfellas sequel. It that's technically cute. maybe <laughs> actually could be based on the character he's playing. Unclear. Uh, that's funny. <laughs> anyway.
1: Um, cool. My one thing is a book. Uh, I, I read books. while you uh, you guys watch. I just, movies I don't have time. It's such I a need, sophisticated I need flashy man.
2: images on screen. Mm-hmm. That's it. I just
0: need <laughs> cocaine and uh, cyborgs <laughs> and That's robots eating
2: people's <laughs> arms. <laughs> All I do blood. really
1: is play Switch, play Action Path Traveler too on the Switch. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I I don't read books. No, I'm reading a book. Um, it's really really cool. It's called Tracers in the Dark by Andy Greenberg. Andy Greenberg is a reporter for Wired. Um, I think formerly of Forbes. And this book is about. Um, these kind of people whose job or who have spent the past few years tracing down criminals in the crypto world, in the cryptocurrency world. For no. example, um, the Silk Road drug network, the people who traced down the guy who was behind it, this guy who went by mm-hmm. the moniker Dread Pirate Roberts from yeah. Princess Bride. Um, and uh, uh, the book is all about like how they did it. And we meet some of these characters who did it, these people who are like, into solving the puzzle of cryptocurrency and figuring out um, how you trace it, how you trace the blockchain. Um, one of the characters he introduces early on is actually the person who like helped co-lead this research paper on how blockchain um and bitcoin is not or bitcoin specifically is not actually anonymous and how you can trace da- trace back mm-hmm. like who where the address came from and although you can't find like their name or personal details or anything you can use that information combined with other information to potentially yep. trace people um and how how many like uh crimes that helped uncover. And it's really, really interesting. Um, because so much of it is just like fascinating behind the scenes stuff. There's a whole section about this like corrupt FBI agent who himself just like wound up like on the take for cryptocurrency stuff and like wound up using his position to exhort uh the dread pirate roberts um and the silk road and like get money out of them and really just fascinating stuff and Mm. it sounds like they
2: needed robocop in this scenario they did
1: uh. they need well they need crypto crypto cop um maddie if you were titling the book you could call it crypto crypto cop Or you could call it Cocaine Crypto. <laughs> cocaine yes, Crypto. Um, <laughs> Robocop 5, he does some cocaine and then checks down some bear?
0: Crypto Bros. Yeah. I don't know.
1: We'll make it worse. Um, and I think the the real thing to, worth, to, to note here is that it's just written extremely well and good writing can really just carry you through a nonfiction story um, no matter what. And this book is really, really good at that. Um, it reads like a great thriller or something like that it just has a good it's just extremely readable um and so i really enjoyed it um i nice. haven't finished it yet but i'm really enjoying what i'm reading so far um once again called tracers in the dark by andy greenberg and that is it for this week's yeah. episode cool. um, so yeah. kirk maddie are you guys going to after we finish recording this are you going into flow mode or thought mode what are you thinking I think i'm gonna go flow. do some
2: Because I'm going to eat dinner, Mm -hmm. which I would say is flow. Yeah, I was going
1: to say, I think I'm going to give some thought to what to have for dinner and then flow my way to the kitchen. Uh, I'm going to go edit this episode, which is pure flow mode. No Mm -hmm, thought mm -hmm, mm required. Just total flow. All right, guys. I will see you both next week.
0: Yeah, see you both next week. Bye. Find us on Twitter at TripleClickPod, send email triple TripleClick at MaximumFun.org, and find a link to our Discord in the show notes. Thanks for listening. See you next time.